0: Gospel of Mark in the 8th chapter, verse 22. And he, that is Jesus, cometh to Bethsaida. They bring a blind man unto him, he besought him to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the town. And when he had spit on his eyes and put his hands upon him, he asked him if he saw aught. And he looked up and said, I see men as trees walking. After that, he put his hands again upon his eyes and made him look up, and he was restored and saw every man clearly, and sent him away to his house, saying, Neither go into the town nor tell it to any in the town. i want to preach tonight for just a little bit on the second touch, the second touch. If you consult a harmony of the Gospels, you'll find that there are 35 Named miracles that Jesus performed during his earthly ministry. Of course, he performed hundreds more. In fact, John said that the books could not, the world could not contain the books that should be written of all that Jesus did. But 35 specific cases that you would be familiar with Jairus' daughter, and blind Bartimaeus, and the man born of four, and the maniac of Gadara. One of the richest studies is to study these miracles. These miracles tend to fall into four different categories. There are miracles of ruling over nature, restoring of health, removing of demons, and raising the dead. Several years ago, I became interested in some of the lesser-known miracles, miracles that you don't hear a lot of preaching about. For example, there was a miracle in John 6. In fact, all four gospel writers Talk about the feeding of the 5,000. There's a similar miracle in Matthew and Mark, and it is the feeding of the 4,000. It's sometimes called the forgotten miracle because we always preach from the feeding of the 5,000. But is it any less miraculous to feed 4,000 as it is to feed 5,000? I know it's a little bit less people, but it's not a whole lot less. It's still a pretty good miracle. Some commentators say that it is the same miracle. There are too many differences for it to be the same miracle. And I believe there's a reason why Jesus would do such a similar miracle so close together. What is significant about the feeding of the 4,000 is where Jesus did it. The difference between the two miracles is that for the feeding of the 5,000 is done to a Jewish audience. The feeding of the 4,000 is to a Gentile audience. Jesus had gone up into Tyre and Sidon, which is Gentile territory, to an area that was called Syrah Phoenicia. And one of the lessons that he teaches his disciples with it there is that they have to have compassion on all men. In just a few months, he's gonna leave them with a commission, and the commission is to go into you know, all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. But these Jews, these Jewish <coughs> disciples are, are, uh, are, are very Uh, nationalistic and they look down on Gentiles and they believe that salvation belongs to the Jews and that every creature is going to give them problems. In fact, even in the book of Acts, the Great Commission, the all the world part is the part that that they struggle with and they've got to learn that in Christ there is neither Jew nor Greek. (coughs) And so Jesus takes them into Gentile territory and shows as much compassion on the Gentiles as he does on the Jewish brethren. It is an area of paganism and idol worship, but Jesus still had compassion on those people. And the disciples never questioned if he could feed the 4,000, but would he? And he did. There's a reason for that miracle. I was looking at a miracle today and I was telling Brother Gravely about the feeding or the catching of the fish and and where Jesus sent Peter in Matthew 17 to Go catch that fish with the coin in his mouth to, to pay a tax. A group of tax collectors had come to Peter and asked him if his master paid taxes or not. And Matthew 17 is very interesting because the chapter begins on the Mount of Transfiguration. The chapter ends with Jesus paying taxes. There's a picture of his glorification and his humiliation in the same chapter. And it's an interesting miracle because it's recorded only by Matthew. It is the only miracle that involves actual money is the only miracle that doesn't record the results it says that jesus sent him to catch the fish it doesn't actually say that he did i believe that he did but i am just telling you what it says and if you read the context of that passage i don't believe that it is a civil tax in question it is a temple tax it has nothing to do with paying taxes to the government it is a religious tax And it goes back to Exodus chapter 30 and verse number 11 where the children of Israel are being numbered or polled every year like a census. And at that census, every male, 20 years of age and older, was to pay a half shekel tax to the temple for the service of the temple. It's a flat tax. It's a reminder of the redemption. And so it's an equal amount to show that when it comes to redemption, everybody is on equal footing. And in Exodus Exodus 30, when Moses enacts that tax, um, he uses the word three times to make an atonement for your soul. To make an atonement for your soul, once he talks about it being a ransom, lest there be a plague upon you. So the payment was a ransom, it was an atonement. And if you didn't pay it, you'd be plagued with a plague. Atonement and ransom are two very similar words. It is to cover one's sin. It is a price paid for one's life. So in Exodus 30, there is a temple tax instituted. It is called a ransom. It is called an atonement. And if you don't pay it, there is a plague that comes upon you. It's a reminder that you need a covering thing. When you come back to Matthew 17 at that miracle, Jesus says, go pay the tax for thee and me. But Jesus didn't need to pay the tax. He didn't need an atonement. That's right. He didn't need a ransom. That's right. Peter did. That's right. But Peter's problem is he can't pay it. He doesn't have the coin. He doesn't have the means available. So Jesus paid the tax, fulfilled all law, but then he went and paid the tax for him. He, he paid, a, paid a debt that he didn't owe uh, uh, because Peter owed a debt that he couldn't pay. There, there's a reason for that miracle there. So I got interested in these Unusual miracles. I'm going to come to Mark chapter 8, it has to be the most unusual miracle in the Gospels. Because what I read for you is Jesus does a miracle and he does it in stages. He uses a very strange process and it doesn't work the first time that he tries it. For the first time, Jesus does a miracle and, if I can use the word loosely, fails. And he has to do the miracle a second time in order for it to work. And when he sends the man away, he is adamant. He is adamant. You keep this quiet. You don't tell anybody what has happened. Now, I've heard preaching from this passage a couple of times, and every time that I have heard it preached, the phrase, I see men as trees, was lifted out as the message. You could cross-reference that to Psalm 1. He should be like a tree planted by the rivers of water. I read a commentator who said that the point of the miracle is missions, that we need to see men as Jesus sees them. We need to have our vision refocused so we can see men as they really are. The only problem with it is that it's not Jesus that sees ministry. It's the blind man. It never did, never did fit for me. And there are already seven other miracles in the Gospels of Jesus healing the blind man. So, so why do we need this one? And as I study this miracle where the story sits and how it is told and how it takes place, I I wonder if there is something here more than just a miracle. And sometimes when you read a passage, you don't understand it, read it again. If you don't understand it, read it again. If you don't understand it, read it. Just keep reading it and eventually the Holy Spirit will shine a spotlight on it and will reveal to you what, what the Lord's trying to say in that passage. When I look at this miracle, I'll give it to you quickly, and I'll, I'll hurry as quick as I can. I, I want you to notice, first of all, and you've got to listen on purpose tonight. This is not camp meeting message, but I think it'll help you. But I want you to notice, first of all, there is a significant background. I, and I, I am a, a loner. I, I'm a hermit type guy. We were talking about that at the table. I, I don't thrive on fellowship. I don't have to have company around me. I, I don't have to be entertained. I enjoy it, but I don't have to have it. To me, a good time is a good book and silence. To me, that is a great time. But I enjoy, I enjoy talking to your preacher because your preacher likes to talk books and preaching and sermon ideas and we both enjoy it. And it's, it's a great thrill. It's a great thrill to learn something. He, he and I have that in common. And when I study a passage of scripture, I am a stickler on context. I believe it is a crime against scripture to lift a verse out of its context, put it over here by itself, and use it to say whatever you want it to say. I believe that the geography, the history, the culture, the grammar, I believe all of that is important. Every verse in your Bible, except two, has a verse in front of it and a verse before it. And usually those verses have some bearing on the verse in between. There's a context. Each gospel writer writes in his own style. When you read Matthew and Mark, you notice that they tell the same story, but it's a different story. And one of the things that Mark uses in his gospel is repetition. If you're not careful when you're reading through Mark's gospel, sometimes if you're not paying attention, you'll, you'll snap to attention and say, you know, it seems like that I, I, I just read that just a minute ago. For example, here's the layout of Mark chapter 6 and chapter 7. In Mark chapter 6, there is the feeding of the 5,000. And immediately after that, he crosses the Sea of Galilee in a boat. He has a conflict with Pharisees, a conversation about bread, and he heals a deaf man by spittle and laying out of hands. When you come to Mark chapter 8, here's what happens in the chapter. There is the feeding of the 4,000. And immediately after, he crosses the Sea of Galilee in a boat. He has a conflict with Pharisees, a conversation with his disciples about bread, and he heals a blind man by laying out of hands and spittle. Now, I don't think that Mark is a poor writer. I think he's an intentional writer. I believe what he's trying to say is pay attention. I'm trying to tell you something here. Now look at the context of this. Back up, if you would, to verse number 14. The disciples had forgotten to take bread. Neither had they in the ship with them more than one loaf. He charged them, saying, Take heed, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of the leaven of Herod. And they reasoned among themselves, saying, It is because we have no bread. When Jesus knew it, he saith unto them, Why reason ye? Because ye have no bread. Now watch this. Perceive ye not yet, neither understand? Have ye you your heart yet hardened? Having eyes see ye not, having ears hear ye not, do ye not understand? Do ye not remember? When I break the five loaves among 5,000, how many baskets full of fragments took ye They say unto him 12. And when the seven among 4,000, how many baskets full of fragments took ye And they said seven, and he said unto them, how is it that ye do not understand? Here is a conversation between the Lord and the disciples They think that the subject is bread. He's not giving them baking lessons. When Jesus mentions the leaven of the Pharisees and of of Herod, he's talking about something spiritual. He's not talking about physical leaven that they cooked with, but the disciples have missed the spiritual application because they have their minds on physical matters. And I hear the frustration in verse 21. How is it that ye do not understand? That is the point of the entire passage. You disciples are dull of spiritual perception. Now, Now, hang on to this thought. Everything's going to build around that, but I want you to see how Mark structures it. There are only two miracles in the Gospel of Mark that are unique to Mark, that are found only in the Gospel of Mark, and both of them are in this context. If you'll back up to chapter seven quickly, I'm building something. Look at verse 32. They bring unto him one that was deaf, had an impediment in his speech. They beseech him to put his hand upon him. He took him aside from the multitude, put his fingers into his ears, and he spit and touched his tongue. Looking up to heaven, he sighed and said unto him, Ephetha, that is, be open, and straightway his ears were opened, and the string of his tongue was loosed, and he spake plain, Here is healing a deaf. And a dumb man, that is the only place in the Gospels you'll find that miracle. The other miracle that is found only in the Gospel of Mark is the miracle that we're talking about, the healing of the blind man. So he heals a deaf man. He heals a blind man. Mark's the only one that tells you about those miracles. And right in the middle of those miracles, you have this conversation that Jesus tells these disciples in verse number 18, having eyes see you not, Having ears, hear you not? The lesson is too obvious. He's telling the disciples, you're the one that is spiritually deaf, you're the one that is spiritually blind. There's a context to this. Now pay attention. Pay attention to where the miracle takes place. The greater part of his ministry took place in Galilee, the northern region of Israel. He has been at this point in Galilee close to a year and a half but the end of his ministry is coming to an end. In that year and a half, he has performed more miracles around the Sea of Galilee and Capernaum and those villages than he has any other region in all of Israel. Jairus' daughter and the woman with the the widow of Nain's son and and the maniac of Gadara and and the woman with the issue of the blood and the tempest on the sea and, and the man with the withered hand. He has done literally hundreds of miracles in that region. So he's in the regions of Israel that has received more light, more revelation, more signs. If anybody should believe that he's the Messiah, if anybody has enough evidence, it's that man, that that area. However, they've rejected him. They have rejected him as the Messiah and he is leaving. In fact, when they bring this blind man to Jesus, Jesus is already on his way out of the region. He passes through Bethsaida, and that's where they bring this man to Jesus. That's very important. Bethsaida was next door to Capernaum. So many miracles have taken place in Capernaum. There is probably not a man in that region that does not know of the fame of Jesus, but what I've just read to you is the last miracle He'll ever perform in Bethsaida. And when He came here, He didn't come to do a miracle. There is no preaching. There is no public ministry. His public ministry has come to an end. His ministry in Galilee has come to an end, and He performs this miracle only as an object lesson. I believe if it were not for a spiritual lesson he needed to teach his disciples, I believe it would have turned that blind man away. Yeah. This blind man has literally come to Jesus at the worst possible time and the worst possible place. Final months of the Lord's earthly ministry, last time passing through Bethsaida, not here to do any miracles. There is a significant background. Now, that may all sound like wonky details, but that's the setting of the miracle. Secondly, I want you to notice some strange behaviors. You know, you know, in Bible days, there was no cure for blindness. In fact, there wasn't a cure for much of anything. In Bible days, you had what you had, and then you died with it. The best medicines, folk, med- folk remedies, something along those lines. The woman with the issue of blood spent all of her living for 12 years going to physicians, never grew better, but rather grew worse. And so all the people came to Jesus for Jesus to heal, and really for two reasons. One, nobody else could, and two, he could. So everywhere he went, there's people that are thronging him. And if blindness was your disease, then you are especially had very little hope. There's no braille societies. There's no, there's no CNI dogs. There's no talking computers. And blindness meant that you would be dependent upon your family. That's why blind people were usually beggars in that day because there wasn't anything that they could do. There was a no little sympathy from people. In John 8, the man born blind, Jesus healed him. They didn't rejoice, they got mad about it. Yeah. And when Jesus healed this man, he employs a very unusual method. In fact, it's strange the way that it plays out. Look at it in verse 22. He cometh to Bethsaida. They bring a blind man unto him and besought him to touch him. Not heal him, but touch him. And Jesus didn't always heal by touching. But they knew enough that if he did touch, there was healing powers in his touch. You know Mark presents Christ as the servant, right? Gospel of the servant. A servant serves with his hand. His hands. And over and over and over, Mark makes mentions of the hands of Jesus. He says he took her by the hand. He put forth his hand. He took the damsel by the hand over and over and over. He talks about the servant using his hands. So he touched him. But then notice what he did in verse 23. He took the blind man by the hand. Now watch this. And led him out of the town. Now, I believe that every phrase is is, is deliberate. And I'm not reading anything into the text. I'm reading just the text. That's all I'm doing. Here's Jesus in Bethsaida. I guess he's at some house. There's some people crowded around him. There's some disciples there on the porch. And so family members bring this blind man to Jesus in Bethsaida. And probably somebody comes into the house and says, Jesus, there's a blind man outside. He wants you to come out and to heal him. And Jesus comes out and perhaps stands on the porch and there's that blind man. I believe with all of my heart, Jesus could've healed him right there. I believe he could've. But he very deliberately, the Bible says that he went, I can imagine, took this blind man by the hand and together they walked down the dusty road, a block two, three, until they get outside of Bethsaida. He led him out of town. It is very intentional. He's not going to do this miracle in Bethsaida. What's he got against Bethsaida? In fact, look at verse 26. After the miracle. He sent him away to his house. Watch this saying. Neither go into the town nor tell it to any in the town. He's determined not to do the miracle in the town. Then he says, don't go back into the town. Now, there are times that Jesus did a miracle and said, don't tell anybody. You got to go to the priest, something along those lines. That is not the case here. He doesn't doesn't say don't tell anybody. He says don't tell anybody in town. How do you hide the fact that you were blind, now you can see? How's that work? You still going to wear dark sunglasses and tin cups? No, no. somebody's going to know. He's not saying don't tell anybody. He says don't tell anybody in town. Why? Well, look at verse number 11. Go back to verse 11. The Pharisees came forth. And they began to question with him, seeking of him a sign from heaven, tempting him. They're asking for a sign, but wait a minute. Think of all the signs they've already been given. Yeah. He's been here for the greater part of. Of a year and a half, he's done more miracles, more signs in this region than anywhere else. And now they come tempting him, asking for a sign. You've got to be kidding me. You still need proof? You need even to do one more miracle? So in verse 12, and he sighed deeply in his spirit. And said, why does this generation seek after a sign? Now watch this. Verily I say unto you, there shall no sign be given unto this generation, no more signs. With all the miracles that I performed, with all the evidence that you have, you are deliberately blind to my Messiahship no more, no more. And immediately crosses the Sea of Galilee and walks in the Bethsaida. Did you know Bethsaida was given so much light? For the most part, they had rejected Christ. Hold your finger right here. Go to Matthew chapter 11. In Matthew chapter 11, Jesus is pronouncing a curse upon cities where he had performed so many miracles, but they had rejected him. And in Matthew 11 and verse 21, woe unto thee, Chorazin, woe unto thee, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Woe unto you, Bethsaida. If I'd have done those same miracles in you, that I, if I'd have done those same miracles in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented. They would have believed me. But I did all of those miracles in your midst and you still have not believed me no more. You want another sign. I'm not giving you another sign. And up walks a blind man. And Jesus says, "Um, let's go out of town. I'm not doing it here. But I'll take you out of town. No signs in Bethsaida. Look what he does in Mark 8. He took the blind man by his hand. He led him out of the town. And when he had spit on his eyes, there are three times in the Gospels where Jesus uses spittle to heal. I think I have read every commentator ever written on why Jesus spit. And here's what I've concluded they don't know. <laughs> One commentator said that people believed that there was healing properties in spittle, and Jesus was accommodating to that. I think that's a ridiculous idea. Yeah. Somebody said there was something magical about Jesus' spittle. If man spit on you, it was cursed. Jesus spit on you, it's a blessing. I still think it's gross, to be honest with you. I don't see that. I, I, I've tried to make a connection between, between the Jesus spitting on him and them spitting on him at the Sanhedrin trial. No, I, I don't think that nobody knows. I know this man didn't care. He doesn't protest. And it could be, it could be he could have heard about what Jesus did in chapter 7 But that deaf man. And maybe it gives him some hope, but he spits, he spits. Then watch this, watch this. He took the blind man by the hand and laid him out of town. When he spit on his eyes, watch this. He put his hands upon him. He asked him if he saw aught. Every time that you read a miracle, you know what to expect. That as soon as Jesus touches him or speaks to him, the man is instantly, he is instantly healed. There are times where the healing is delayed where he has to go to a priest and be pronounced clean or something like that, but but we know he's instantly healed. But here's what makes this miracle so unique. Jesus touches this man, and then here's what he says. Can you see? Did it work? That's what he says. He asked him if he saw aught. How do you feel? Can you see anything? How many fingers am I holding up? And here's where it gets really strange. He looked up and said, "I see men as trees walking." It's better. I I I can see I can see they, they look like trees but they're walking. I I can I can make out some shapes. I can make out definitely better, Jesus, but but I I just it, boy, it's really blurry. Really blurry. Huh. So verse 25. After that, he put his hands again upon his eyes and made him look up. And he was restored and saw every man clearly. I'm just reading the text. But for the first and only time, Jesus performed a miracle that didn't work the first time. He is only partially restored. He sees shapes, but he can't focus. So Jesus touches him again. And this time it takes. And Jesus knew that, by the way. Otherwise, he would never ask him, can you see? Yeah. Now here's the question. Whose fault was it? If we were to take a vote, I would hope that you would not say that it is Jesus' fault. That's right. But maybe he was tired from ministry. Maybe, maybe the stress of knowing the cross is two months away, maybe that's weighing down on him. Maybe he's distracted. Maybe, maybe he's drained from all of that power, leaving you. I don't think it's his fault. I really don't. Well, then it's got to be the blind man's fault. He doesn't have enough faith. Of course, Lazarus didn't have any faith. He was dead, but he still got his healing. Strange behaviors. Significant background. Strange behaviors. Here's the third point I've done. The point of spiritual blindness. I don't believe anything is insignificant in the Bible. There's a reason why Mark gives you two miracles that no other gospel gives you. There's a reason why one deals with deafness, one deals with blindness. I I believe Jesus is giving them an object blessing. Having ears, ye hear not. Having eyes, ye see not. You're the deaf man. You're the blind man. I believe he's telling the disciples, you've been touched by Jesus, you've received spiritual sight, but you don't see clearly. You're the blind man. And what you need is you need a second touch to help you see what you don't see. In just a few months, Jesus would go to the cross. He leaves these disciples with the commission to preach the gospel, to build the church. And when he departed, everything is left in the hands of 11 men. He has spent the better part of two and a half years teaching them even at this late hour. There is so much they don't understand. They still question his death. They still argue over seats of prominence in the kingdom. They still misunderstand so much of what Jesus says. In fact, in this very chapter, Jesus is going to tell them he's going to the cross and Peter will rebuke him. In this chapter, they've missed so much. And what they need is a second touch. You're the blind man who barely has enough sight to see things, but you don't see clearly. And Jesus takes this man out of town. I'm not doing another miracle. in Bethsaida, with all of the signs performed in your presence, you, you still ask for a sign. And he heals this man with two touches, two touches. It's not because he's tired. It's not because he's losing his game. It's not because he's having a bad day. He does it intentionally because I need to teach these disciples a lesson. And it is that you need a second touch from me. And I think that most Christians are that blind man. You remember when you got saved when the light of the glorious gospel dawned upon you? How getting saved was so revealing to you. It was like, it was like light dawning on your dark soul. It was like, it was like, it was like the, the, the scales of blindness being lifted. And that day or that night that you got saved, you had your eyes opened by the gospel. But I'm going to tell you something. There is still so much that you and I don't see. And if you don't see clearly, you'll find yourself buying into a philosophy of this world that is contrary to God's word. And if you don't see clearly, you will make decisions that will take you out of the will of God. And if you don't see clearly, you'll make decisions that will harm your family and lead them astray. And if you don't see clearly, you'll justify things that the Bible condemns and if you don't see clearly, you'll fall prey to smooth and false teachers and TV preachers and false doctrines. We, we live in a world of noise. Noise, and most Christians immerse themselves in that noise all day and all night and all week long. And I'm telling you that if you soak your mind with television and with talk radio and with social media and Twitter and Facebook and all of the rest of it, you will find yourself agreeing with that noise and it will shape your philosophy on life and it will influence decisions that you make, but you need to saturate your mind every day with the word of God and preaching and godly music because if you do not see clearly, you will make decisions that do not have a biblical foundation. Your priorities will be upon the earthly and, and not the eternal. And you will place priorities on worthless things. Yes. What you desperately need tonight is a second touch. Lord, I, I have a big decision before me and I'm not sure which way to go. Lord, touch me again. Yes. Lord, my children are getting older and I don't know how to direct their young lives. Touch me again, Lord. Yes, Because I don't always see clearly. I don't always make good choices. I don't always take the right path. My priorities are not always in line with heaven. And sometimes I have put so much noise in my head that I find that my thinking is in line with this world. So Lord, when I read your word, please speak to me. Show me your ways and teach me your will and correct my thoughts. And may I hear no other voice but yours. Touch me again more. Open mine eyes that I might see glimpses of truth thou hast for me. And place in my hands the wonderful key that shall unclasp and set me free. And silently now I wait for thee. Ready, my God, thy will to see. Open my eyes, illumine me, Spirit divine. Our Heavenly Father, I want your wisdom. I want to see life from a heavenly perspective. I want to make decisions that are based upon the Word of God. I cannot pastor the church that I pastor. I cannot lead the children that I have. I can't love the wife that I have. Without you, I need the Holy Spirit every day of my life. I need you to speak to me. I need you to direct me. I need you to guide me. When I filled my mind with so much noise from this world, and I'm beginning to veer away on a stray path, Holy Spirit, touch me again. Show me things that I'm not looking at. Help me to see clearly. Clearly tonight. Lord, help us tonight. Give us that second touch. That second touch. The altar's open tonight. Several have come to pray. You ought to come tonight and say, Lord, I need your touch in my life. I need your wisdom. I need the Holy Spirit to guide me and direct me. The task that you've called me to is great, too great. The ministry is too much. There's too much at stake. Little decisions have big consequences. So whether it's in the big decisions, the little decisions, the daily decisions, or the once-in-a-lifetime decisions, I want the mind of God. I want the perspective of heaven. Lord, touch me, touch me again, brother Gravely.